This is AMEN, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. From Command Center Alpha 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, USA. This is a special edition of the Cigar Dave Show, the D-Day 75th Anniversary Tribute. Today's broadcast maneuvers emanate from the American Victory Ship, located in the port of Tampa. This ship is one of only four fully operational World War II ships in the country. And now, with the D-Day 75th Anniversary Tribute, here's the global alpha male-in-chief, the General Cigar Dave. It is indeed a solemn day, the 75th anniversary of Operation Overlord, the invasion at Normandy. We have a very special program for you today, filled with speeches from President Trump, President Ronald Reagan on the 40th anniversary of D-Day at Pointe de Hoc. We have a special excerpt of a play that looks at the decision made on whether to go or not go on D-Day based upon the weather. We've got interviews from Tom Blakey, one of the first paratroopers that descended behind enemy lines. I've got Cigar Mother Piera, who visited Normandy, her recollections. Dr. Nick Mueller, the author of Everything We Have, a book about D-Day. And we come to you today from the American Victory ship, a ship that was built initially for World War II in just 55 days at Cal Ship in Los Angeles. And we come to you from the gunner's quarters. Appropriate that we are on a ship that served in the Pacific and in the European theater of operations. But first, we must look at a timeline leading up to D-Day. September 7th, 1939, Nazi Germany invades Poland. World War II begins for five years. Hitler and the enemy Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan inflict a reign of terror and destruction on the Western world. 1942. Adolf Hitler orders the construction of extensive fortifications along the Atlantic coast of Europe from Spain to Norway as a defense against an allied invasion of the mainland European continent from Great Britain. The Atlantic Wall spans over 1,600 miles. It is lined with mines, anti-tank hedgehogs, barbed wire, booby traps, concrete casements, and giant guns and gun pits. Knowing that a Nazi defeat would require opening a Western Front, the Allies meet at the Trident Conference in Washington, May 1943. The decision to undertake a cross-channel invasion from Great Britain was made at that time. Penetrating the Atlantic Wall would be difficult, even in a surprise attack. Amphibious operations are inherently the most complicated in war. Napoleon failed to cross the English Channel. Hitler desired to make the crossing, but knew it would be far too difficult. What the Allies would attempt had never been done before. There was no historical precedent. The nation ramped up the war effort in massive numbers with planes, ships, boats, tanks, jeeps, 
munitions produced around the clock in American factories. For the next year, the Allies, under Supreme Allied Commander Dwight D. Eisenhower, planned Operation Overlord, with the first attack on Normandy codenamed Operation Neptune, better known as D-Day. December 1943, a massive Allied deception campaign codenamed Operation Fortitude was launched against the enemy Germans during the build-up to D-Day. The goal? Mislead the Nazi high command as to the location of the invasion and prevent a build-up of German troops, weapons, and fortifications in Normandy. Two fictitious field armies were created, each stocked with dummy landing craft, planes, tanks, and troops. In Edinburgh, England, Fortitude North created the illusion of a Norway invasion. In South England, Fortitude South created the illusion of an attack at Pas-de-Calais in France. The real Allied invasion would take place on the beaches of Normandy within a 50-mile length of rugged, jagged coastline. The Allies would land in five areas along the beach, codenamed Utah, Omaha, Gold, June, and Sword. The weather was critical and the ultimate deciding factor in launching Operation Neptune. British weather is notoriously unreliable. Sunny, calm, and warm today, overcast, windy, and cold tomorrow. The original invasion day, June 5th, 1944, was delayed by a day due to stormy weather. The Allied forces were waiting, ready in staggering numbers, 156,000 troops, 11,590 aircraft, 7,000 maritime vessels, including 1,213 naval combat ships, 4,126 landing ships and landing craft, 736 ancillary craft, and 864 merchant vessels, all ready to storm the beaches and descend upon northern France to take out the Nazi enemy. In addition to the troops who landed in Normandy on D-Day, and those in supporting roles at sea and in the air, millions more men and women in the Allied countries were involved in the preparations for D-Day. They played thousands of different roles, both in the armed forces and as civilians. On June 5th, at 4.15 a.m. British Double Daylight Savings Time, General Eisenhower, after conferring with his chief meteorologist, Captain James Stagg, and his command leadership gives the order for the attack to proceed with three simple words. Okay, let's go. General Eisenhower addresses the Allied forces prior to the invasion. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41.
the United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. June 6, 1944, 12.14 a.m. The first Allied action of D-Day commences, Operation Deadstick, a glider assault at Con Canal to capture and secure two key bridges. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the NBC newsroom in New York, where we are standing by to bring you the news of the reported operations against the continent by the Allies. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. The aerial bombardment then began with over 2,200 Allied bombers attacking targets along the coast and further inland. Minesweepers began clearing the channels for the invasion fleet. 13,000 paratroopers of the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions swept in behind enemy lines, transported by Douglas C-47 Skytrains, 20 to a plane. Naval bombardment commenced at 0545 while it was still dark with gunners switching to pre-assign targets on the beach as soon as it was light enough to see. 0630, the wave of Higgins boats carrying U.S. infantrymen stormed the beaches at Utah and Omaha. Strong currents pushed many landing craft away from their intended targets. For fear of hitting the American landing craft at Omaha Beach, bombers delayed releasing their munitions. The result? Most all of the Nazi obstacles of the Atlantic Wall remained intact. Our boys were up to their necks in water and blood, wading 50 to 100 yards while under heavy fire from the Nazis perched above the Normandy Bluffs. Two companies of the 741st Tank Battalion dropped their tanks 5,000 yards from shore. 27 of the 32 took to the water and sank with a loss of 33 crew. The remaining tanks continued to provide covering fire until their munitions ran out or they were swamped by a rising tide. The American casualties on D-Day were heavy. 10,000 casualties, 4,414 confirmed dead, many dying seconds after the door to their Higgins boats were lowered. Despite the obstacles and difficulties, the Normandy beachheads were secured, paving the way for the beginning of the end of World War II. General Eisenhower announces the Normandy landings. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. 
This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I have this message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the hour of your liberation is approaching. All patriots, men and women, young and old, have a part to play in the achievement of final victory. To members of resistance movements, whether led by nationals or by outside leaders, I say, follow the instructions you have received. To patriots who are not members of organized resistance groups, I say, continue your passive resistance, but do not needlessly endanger your lives. Wait until I give you the signal to rise and strike the enemy. The day will come when I shall need your united strength. Until that day, I call on you for the hard task of discipline and restraint. Citizens of France, I am proud to have again under my command the gallant forces of France. Fighting beside their allies, they will play a worthy part in the liberation of their homeland. Because the initial landing has been made on the soil of your country, I repeat to you with even greater emphasis my message to the peoples of other occupied countries in Western Europe. Follow the instructions of your leaders. A premature uprising of all Frenchmen may prevent you from being of maximum help to your country in the critical hour. Be patient. Prepare. As Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, there is imposed on me the duty and responsibility of taking all measures necessary to the prosecution of the war. Prompt and willing obedience to the orders that I shall issue is essential. Effective civil administration of France must be provided by Frenchmen. All persons must continue in their present duties unless otherwise instructed. Those who have made common cause with the enemy and so betrayed their country will be removed. When France is liberated from her oppressors, you yourselves will choose your representatives and the government under which you wish to live. In the course of this campaign for the final defeat of the enemy, you may sustain further loss and damage. Tragic though they may be, they are part of the price of victory. I assure you that I shall do all in my power to mitigate your hardships. I know that I can count on your steadfastness now, no less than in the past. The heroic deeds of Frenchmen who have continued the struggle against the Nazis and their Vichy satellites in France and throughout the French Empire have been an example and an inspiration to all of us. This landing is but the opening phase of the campaign in Western Europe. Great battles lie ahead. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Keep your faith staunch. Our arms are resolute. Together we shall achieve victory. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt then speaks to the nation. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment the troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, 
in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Operation Overlord at Normandy D-Day was successful. But General Eisenhower was prepared if the mission failed. Eisenhower hand wrote a letter by pencil on a four and a half by seven inch paper that became known as the in case of failure letter. In four sentences, Eisenhower would accept blame. It read, Our landings in the Charbourg Havre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Thankfully, the American and Allied forces successfully stormed the beaches. 
history, and the world was forever changed on that bloody day in Normandy, June 6, 1944. We commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day on this special edition of the Cigar Dave Show, totally devoted to D-Day and Operation Overlord. We continue our broadcast maneuvers from the World War II-era American victory ship in Tampa that was built in just 55 days for the World War II effort. The emotions that are always stirred up while watching our veterans go over and commemorate D-Day, whether it was for 40 or 50 or 70 or this year 75th anniversary, always overwhelming. And we have audio that we will play, excerpts of President Trump's speech today in Normandy. We have President Reagan, who honored the boys who stormed the cliff at Point du Hoc back from his 1984 speech. We have a very special program. It is unlike any other show we ever do throughout the course of the year, but it is special. And at this time, we memorialize the boys who stormed the beaches on D-Day and remain forever young on the battlefield. So at this time, we will honor them, pay tribute to them as we play and memorialize them with a special rendition of TAPS. Seventy-five years since our young soldiers stormed the beaches in France to liberate Europe. Remembrance maneuvers continue after this on the Cigar Dave Show. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. To Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, 
quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. Commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy with the General Cigar Dave. A well-known song from World War II, American Patrol, but interestingly, it was written in 1885, published in 1891, initially composed by F.W. Meacham. But Glenn Miller's orchestra recorded it in 1942, released it as a 78 RPM single, and it became one of the well-known songs throughout World War II, and we have other music that we will play throughout the show, this special 75th commemoration of D-Day. And one of the interesting backstories of D-Day is the weather. The British weather is notorious for being unpredictable. And when you were going to, when Eisenhower and the Allies were going to launch their invasion upon Normandy, they had to have just the right conditions to get the vessels and the planes and the landing craft. They needed the proper amount of visibility. The waves couldn't be too high or the boats, the uh, Higgins boats would capsize. Eisenhower had everything under his command as Supreme Allied Commander. But the one thing he couldn't command the notorious British weather. D-Day was originally scheduled for June 5th, not June 6th of 1944, and they needed calm weather to launch Operation Overlord. And there were other vital conditions that were necessary. The invasion had to be launched with a full moon during a low spring tide, low winds, good visibilities, and only a few days during the course of June would work. The operation had been meticulously planned for well over a year, but the invasion relied upon the unreliable, and that is the British weather. Eisenhower relied upon his chief meteorologist officer, Captain James Martin Stagg, whose 25 years of British meteorological forecasting experience would be put to the ultimate test. No weather satellites or Doppler weather radar existed in 1944, so there was one thing that was crucial, and that was experience. Stagg predicted a storm on the original D-Day launch date of June 5, 1944, but he believed the weather would break long enough on the morning of June 6, 1944 to allow Operation Overlord to launch. Several days ago, there was a rendition from the play, an excerpt from the play, The West End Play by David Haig, which details the remarkable story of the decision to go or not to go on D-Day, and it was brought to life at the 75th commemoration festivities in England that President Trump, President Macron of France, and Queen Elizabeth attended, as well as German Chancellor Angela Merkel. We play this excerpt, and it is fascinating to show the decision that went into whether to go or not go on D-Day. Gentlemen, one feature has changed substantially since the last chart. 
the long northeastward extension of the Azores anticyclone has withdrawn from Ireland and been forced south into the Bay of Biscay. We can no longer rely on this ridge of high pressure to offer any protection whatsoever to the English Channel on the 5th of June. Obviously, I haven't conferred with Colonel Crick yet, but I imagine he would agree. No, I would not. On what grounds? If you look at the weather charts of June 1923, you will see a similar temporary weakening of the high pressure over the Azores. Within 24 hours, it had reinforced itself and pushed northeastward again. Not so in 1907, not so in 1915. You pick 1923 because it suits your purpose. Are you implying, Dr. Stagg, that Colonel Craig is distorting the truth? Not distorting the truth, no. I trust the Colonel's integrity totally. I trust his record, which is second to none. Gentlemen, many of my men owe their lives to the accuracy of Colonel Crick's forecast. This chart is exactly what I expected. I maintain my prediction of calm, fine weather on Monday. Your prediction, Dr. Stack. For seven winds, low cloud, waves 10 to 12 feet, possibly 15 feet. Are you aware of the consequences of postponement? even for as little as 24 hours. I think I am, sir. Essentially, I would be canceling D-Day. The only other alternative this year, June 19th, is fraught with danger. No full moon. And more importantly, between the 5th and the 19th, we would need to disembark 300,000 men who have been fully briefed. With the best will in the world, preserving the secrecy of D-Day would be impossible. Thousands of ships returning to harbor in stormy seas. Corrosive uncertainty. Demoralized men cooped up in their cabins like animals on their way to the slaughterhouse. Any holdup could be lethal. We cannot delay unless we absolutely have to. Sir. Sir. I can't offer you certainty. I've always said that long-term forecasting is a gamble. What I do offer is 25 years of observing British weather. And despite every risk you've identified, instinct and experience tell me the landing should be postponed. I'm now confident that the Storm L6 will pass through the English Channel on Monday morning. It is a storm of unprecedented malignity for the time of year. I anticipate storm force winds throughout the day. Okay. Okay. Assuming for a moment we accept Dr. Stagg's prognosis. Four seven winds, low cloud, considerable swell. What are the worst conditions we can tolerate, Bertie? Anything above force five and the landing craft will capsize. Waves of four to six feet are dangerous but tolerable. Anything over six feet, impossible. If Stagg's forecast is correct, 
the subsequent swell could exceed nine feet. Now, my other concern is deterioration in the weather on Tuesday and Wednesday, which would leave a quarter of a million men stranded on the beaches with no possibility of landing more troops and equipment as backup. Trevor. How complete will cloud cover be on Monday morning? Ten tenths, zero to 500 feet. Fog. Extremely likely. Absolutely impossible. My bombers won't be able to see their targets, so no guaranteed cover for the landings. Inaccurate bombing will put the lives of thousands of French civilians at risk. Under no circumstances could I support invasion in the conditions described by Dr. Stagg. It would be a catastrophe. Do we? Everything Trafford says is true. And if base is as low as zero, you're going to get mid-air collisions, lose a lot of aircraft, lose a lot of lives. But if we get ashore, the war is over. Might take a while, but it's over. Could argue that any sacrifice on Monday is justifiable. Thank you, gentlemen. I am inclined to believe, to put my faith In Dr. Stagg's forecast, in which case I have no choice but to postpone Overlord for at least 24 hours. Are there any dissenting votes, Bertie? No. Traver? No. Spats? No. So be it. D-Day will be postponed. The backstory behind the decision whether to go or not go initially on June 5th, D-Day, which turned into June 6th, the rest, as they say, is history. A behind-the-scenes look with General Eisenhower, Chief Meteorologist James Stagg, and Eisenhower's commanders from the West End play. We have a special program for you for the rest of uh, the remainder of today. And we have so many interviews and so many incredible speeches that we want to share with you as we pay tribute to our great boys, our brave boys who stormed the beaches on that fateful day, June 6, 1944. And when we come back, we will share a story, a great interview with Thomas Blakey, one of the first paratroopers behind enemy lines that was dropped in. He's no longer with us. But we shared a special interview with him a number of years ago on one of our previous D-Day commemorations, and we felt it important to share it. Again, we will do so when we return as the 75th anniversary commemoration of D-Day continues from the American Victory Ship, a World War II ship, continues in Tampa. The D-Day 75th anniversary tribute will continue next on The Cigar Dave Show. America is under attack. Basic freedoms, privileges, and acts that we would normally take for granted are disappearing each day, including the simple ability to enjoy a cigar. This is Glenn Loop, Executive Director of Cigar Rights of America, CRA. At a time when elected officials should be thinking about education, public safety, and creating jobs, they are actually thinking about smoking bans, new taxes, and regulations of historic proportions on premium cigars. The cigars that provide us with pleasure, relaxation, and fellowship are under attack. We have to stop it. 
That's why Cigar Rights of America was created, to work for a new political day for cigar enthusiasts across America, to roll back restrictive laws and defeat onerous taxes and regulations that impact everyone, from your local cigar shop to your personal humidor. For the price of a few great cigars, be a part of this effort to protect your right to enjoy a cigar without excessive taxation and cumbersome legislation. Go to CigarRights.org. Let's tell the government we've had enough. Join now, CigarRights.org. The Cigar Dave Officers Club has been bringing you fantastic cigars every month for the last 15-plus years. The streak continues. The June 2019 Officers Club selection features the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut, a delicious cigar crowned with a shade-grown wrapper from the Connecticut River Valley. The Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut Provides a luxuriously creamy experience, nice notes of vanilla, toasted caramel, a little bit of pepper, a nice, smooth, natural sweetness to the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut. To become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club and get great cigars such as the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut, it's very simple. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and for $22.95 per month, you will get three exquisite cigars shipped directly to you. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club and experience great cigars such as the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut. This is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. A memorial remembrance. The General continues on this special edition of the Cigar Dave Show. In 2009, for the 65th commemoration of D-Day, we were fortunate to have Thomas Blakey as a guest, one of the D-Day veterans that spoke to groups very active in the World War II Museum in New Orleans, one of the first paratroopers behind enemy lines on June 6, 1944. Thomas passed away on January 15, 2015, but his interview was so interesting and fascinating, we wanted to share it with you one more time on this 75th commemoration of D-Day. I began by asking him about enlisting and becoming a paratrooper. Time magazine in 1940, about the middle of the year, did a eight-page spread on the new army. It was airborne. When I read that, I decided that's where I wanted to do, and I did. I enlisted in the army shortly after Pearl Harbor. Uh, they couldn't take us at the time. We, had, was, we was put off a couple of months, got in, and went through basic training, and then went through parachute school and became qualified as a parachutist. Uh, Tom, if you would relate to us before, what were the preparations before uh, the, the landings at Normandy, the invasion of Normandy, D-Day? Tell us the preparations uh, ahead of time, what you experienced and what you were told prior to that day. We were told uh, prior to that day, we practiced taking, taking the areas that we were supposed to take when we got on the ground in Normandy. We jumped. We found, we found our areas. 
we practiced taking the cities, the bridges, and setting up the road junctions, and we did everything we were supposed to do when we got on the ground, and we did. Tell us about when you were going over, because you actually uh, parachuted in prior to the uh, amphibious landings in the morning, but you had to, there was a short window because you had to have the moonlight to be able to, the pilots had to, to be able to see where they were going to, uh, where you were going to jump. So tell well, us. Well, it, it had been cloudy and raining for a week. We did get a break in the weather. We got, we were behind the front that was going through, so we had moonlight and and clear weather. We got in front of it, and we jumped, and it was in front of the front. It was still raining, not bad, but raining. The front went through us about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and cleared the beaches out. So when they landed on the beaches, the front had already gone through. And tell us, when you landed, what did you see? What did you experience Paint a picture, if you could, for our listeners. Well, I just saw the surroundings. I didn't see anybody. I was not anywhere near any of my fellas, so I was by myself. I was by myself until, oh, I don't know, four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And then I had gotten together with six other fellas. That must have been a little bit on the scary side, uh, you know, being behind enemy lines. It's dark. Uh, none of your, your fellow paratroopers were there. Uh, what, what was going through your mind at the time, or were you just so focused on uh, the mission at hand? Well, everybody has fear. I mean, in, from you have fear from childhood. It goes through your life. You have to learn to live with it and to, and to control it. We were... We did that. We were supposed to do what we did, and we did regardless of fear. Tom, let me ask you, when, when, when dawn came, from there, where did you go? Where did you move to? We, liked it. we went, went moving around to find a, maybe find a road sign that would tell us where we were. Then we would know where to go. We had maps and we knew where we, if we could find where we were, we knew how to get to where we were supposed to be. And did you encounter the enemy along the route? No, we dodged them. There was plenty of them around, but they were in big groups, and we were just six. What do you, what do you, you know? We just we were stayed out of their way to get to where we were supposed to be. And from there, tell us about the subsequent uh, number of weeks uh, after, you know, the, the beaches were captured. Tell us about your movements thereafter. We went, the 82nd went uh, east across the peninsula of Carantan to cut a road going from Paris to Cherbourg. And we did. That was to keep the troops from coming down and escaping Sarberg and to keep them from being reinforced. And that wasn't your only jump, because uh, after the Normandy operations, you participated in the Allied invasion of Holland in September yes. 1944. Yes. Tell us about that. Holland was a, was a mistake. It should have never come off. It was... It was a, fiasco to start with 
and it never got any better. We were there, uh, I don't forget how many days, but we were there, and, and it was, we took, the American boys took the trips, the tricks, the bridges that they were supposed to take, and held them. The Germans had was on both sides of the road, and when the British came through in their lorries and tanks, they were just picked off. Tom, let me ask you, do you remember when you found out the war was over? Yeah, I remember. Tell us about that. I was in Paris. Not a bad place to be. <laughs> a wonderful place. Champagne flowed all day. <laughs> and I'm sure some very nice uh, Parisian women as well. Oh, it was wonderful. Everybody was so happy. The Parisians were just, you just can't imagine how happy they were. They loved the Americans back then. Yes, they did. And, and in Normandy, they still do. They still pay very high esteem uh, to the Americans. And, and uh, when did you return stateside? And, uh June of 45. And that was Thomas Blakey, one of the first paratroopers behind enemy lines on D-Day. Sadly, one of the 350 World War II veterans that we are losing every day. He passed away January 15, 2015. But he donated approximately 15,000 hours to the World War II Museum since it opened in 2000 until he passed away in 2015, served as a speaker, interpretive guide. He was interviewed by Tom Brokaw in New Orleans and uh, Normandy in conjunction with the 70th anniversary of, uh, of D-Day amongst the recipients of the French Legion of Honor Medal. And it, it was just a delight to speak with him. I had the chance to talk with him off the air after our interview and just very, very pleasant. And if you have never gone, to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. It began as the D-Day National Museum in New Orleans and expanded to the National World War II Museum. It is worth a special trip. After one of these cigar retailers' conventions, I want to say about uh, five, six years ago, I stayed an extra day to visit the National World War II Museum. It was overwhelming, incredible displays. The Higgins boat was on display, which we will talk about later in this special edition of the Cigar Dave Show. But they did a multimedia, produced a multimedia extravaganza. I don't say it's a movie. It's in a theater. The seats vibrate. There's smoke. Planes coming at you. It is absolutely incredible. They have updated it. And if you want to do something to honor and pay tribute to the men and women that served in World War II, visit the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. One interesting fact about D-Day. The German commander in Normandy, Erwin Rommel, who was known as the Desert Fox, was so sure there would not be invasion because the forecast was extremely bad. In fact, he wasn't even in Normandy. He decided to go to Germany... During the invasion, before the invasion, because the weather was so bad, and buy his wife shoes. So he was caught a little, pardon the pun, flat-footed. And Adolf Hitler was sleeping while the invasion took place, and none of his generals dared order reinforcements without his permission. No one dared wake him. Crucial hours were lost in the battle to hold Normandy. And when that bastard Hitler did finally wake up around 10 a.m., he actually was excited at the news of the Allied invasion, thinking Germany would easily defeat the Allies. Big mistake. 
never underestimate the resolve and the will of the United States of America and our allies at that time. Our special 75th D-Day commemoration edition of the Cigar Dave Show continues. This is A-M-E-N, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. From Command Center Alpha 1A, in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, U-S-A. This is a special edition of the Cigar Dave Show, the D-Day 75th Anniversary Tribute. Today's broadcast maneuvers emanate from the American Victory Ship, located in the port of Tampa. This ship is one of only four fully operational World War II ships in the country. And now, with the D-Day 75th Anniversary Tribute, here's the global alpha male-in-chief, the General Cigar Dave. This is certainly one of the most unique shows that we will ever produce. No litation ceremony, no libation ceremony. It is more important to honor all those who served in World War II, who participated in the Allied invasion at Normandy, Operation Overlord, and to memorialize the boys who gave everything at Bloody Omaha. A very, very brutal day as many of them were killed as soon as the doors to the their Higgins boats opened up. And so, this hour we have more tributes and we have special speeches. President Trump spoke at the American National Cemetery in Normandy for D-Day. And also, President Ronald Reagan, on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of D-Day, spoke at Point de Hoc, a very memorable speech. And we will start off with First of all, the newsreel, the D-Day newsreel audio. There was no cable TV. There was no Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. There were no network newscasts on television, no satellite TV, no Internet. People got their news delayed by going to the theater and watching the newsreel video. And this is what it sounded like upon the D-Day invasion. It's the newsreel. In the early dawn of D-Day, June 6, 1944, the largest battle armada in history heads across 80 miles of rough channel water from England to the northern coast of France. Barrage balloons and a massive concentration of air and surface guns protect the 4,000 warships, transports, barges, craft of every kind in the invasion convoy. Here is the major striking force of the greatest military undertaking the world has yet known. Here, after years of building, equipping, training, after months of minute, intense tactical planning, here is the decisive thrust at Hitler's Europe. And that's what viewers across the world, as they went into theaters to get the latest news, they saw it on the big screen. President Donald J. Trump, as well as French President Macron, were at the American National Cemetery in Normandy, Omaha Beach, to memorialize and commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day. There were many D-Day veterans that were in attendance. President Trump's speech went about 25 minutes. We're going to play some key excerpts from that speech, and we have created a special page 
for the 75th anniversary of D-Day at CigarDave.com. That has the video of President Trump, his speech, as well as many of the other audio that we have been playing on today's show, as well as interviews and other important websites to learn more about D-Day and its importance. President Trump on D-Day speaking to the guests and the veterans, the D-Day veterans from the cemetery at Normandy. We are gathered here on freedom's altar, on these shores, on these bluffs, on this day 75 years ago, 10,000 men shed their blood and thousands sacrificed their lives for their brothers, for their countries, and for the survival of liberty. Today we remember those who fell and we honor all who fought right here in Normandy. They won back this ground for civilization to more than 170 veterans of the Second World War who join us today. You are among the very greatest Americans who will ever live. You are the pride of our nation. You are the glory of our republic. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Here with you are over 60 veterans who landed on D-Day. Our debt to you is everlasting. Today we express our undying gratitude. When you were young, these men enlisted their lives in a great crusade, one of the greatest of all times. Their mission is the story of an epic battle and the ferocious eternal struggle between good and evil. On the 6th of June, 1944, they joined a liberation force of awesome power and breathtaking scale. After months of planning, the Allies had chosen this ancient coastline to mount their campaign to vanquish the wicked tyranny of the Nazi Empire from the face of the Earth. The battle began in the skies above us, in those first tense midnight hours, 1,000 aircraft roared overhead with 17,000 Allied airborne troops preparing to leap into the darkness beyond these trees. Then came dawn. The enemy who had occupied these heights saw the largest naval armada in the history of the world. Just a few miles offshore were 7,000 vessels bearing 130,000 warriors. They were the citizens of free and independent nations united by their duty to their compatriots into millions yet unborn. And finally, 
There were the Americans. They came from the farms of a vast heartland, the streets of glowing cities, and the forges of mighty industrial towns. Before the war, many had never ventured beyond their own community. Now they had come to offer their lives half a world from home. This beach, codenamed Omaha, was defended by the Nazis with monstrous firepower, thousands and thousands of mines and spikes driven into the sand so deeply. It was here that tens of thousands of the Americans came. By the fourth week of August, Paris was liberated. Some who landed here pushed all the way to the center of Germany. Some threw open the gates of Nazi concentration camps to liberate Jews who had suffered the bottomless horrors of the Holocaust. And some warriors fell on other fields of battle, returning to rest on this soil for eternity. 9,000. 388 young Americans rest beneath the white crosses and stars of David, arrayed on these beautiful grounds. Each one has been adopted by a French family that thinks of him as their own. They come from all over France to look after our boys. They kneel. They cry, they pray, they place flowers, and they never forget. Today, America embraces the French people and thanks you for honoring our beloved dead. Thank you. From across the earth, Americans are drawn to this place as though it were a part of our very soul. We come not only because of what they did here, we come because of who they were. They were young men with their entire lives before them. They were husbands who said goodbye to their young brides and took their duty as their fate. They were fathers who would never meet their infant sons and daughters because they had a job to do. And with God as their witness, they were going to get it done. They came wave after wave without question, without hesitation, and without complaint more powerful than the strength of American arms was the strength of American hearts. These men ran through the fires of hell, moved by a force no weapon could destroy.
the fierce patriotism of a free, proud, and sovereign people. They battled not for control and domination, but for liberty, democracy, and self-rule. The men behind me will tell you that they are just the lucky ones. As one of them recently put it, all the heroes are buried here. But we know what these men did. We knew how brave they were. They came here and saved freedom. And then they went home and showed us all what freedom is all about. To the men who sit behind me and to the boys who rest in the field before me, your example will never, ever grow old. Your legend will never die. Your spirit, brave, unyielding, and true, will never die. The blood that they spilled, the tears that they shed, the lives that they gave, the sacrifice that they made, did not just win a battle. It did not just win a war. Those who fought here won a future for our nation. They won the survival of our civilization. And they showed us the way to love, cherish, and defend our way of life for many centuries to come. Today, as we stand together upon this sacred Earth, we pledge that our nation will forever be strong and united. We will forever be together. Our people will forever be bold. Our hearts will forever be loyal. And our children and their children will forever and always be free. May God bless our great veterans. May God bless our allies. May God bless the heroes of D-Day. And may God bless America. Thank you. Thank you very much. One of the key installations that Army Rangers needed to conquer on D-Day was Point du Hoc, the site of large German enemy guns that were firing at ships. A massive cliff to scale. Many of the Rangers were shot, were killed. Amazingly, they scaled the cliffs. And for the 40th anniversary of the D-Day commemoration on June 6, 1984, President Reagan paid tribute to the boys of Point du Hoc. We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied armies joined in battle to reclaim this continent.
to liberty. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved, and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here, the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men, and the air was filled with the crack of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, 225 rangers jumped off the British landing craft and ran to the bottom of these cliffs. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. The Allies had been told that some of the mightiest of these guns were here, and they would be trained on the beaches to stop the Allied advance. The rangers looked up and saw the enemy soldiers, the edge of the cliffs, shooting down at them with machine guns and throwing grenades. And the American rangers began to climb. They shot rope ladders over the face of these cliffs and began to pull themselves up. When one ranger fell, another would take his place. When one rope was cut, a ranger would grab another and begin his climb again. They climbed, shot back, and held their footing. Soon, one by one, the rangers pulled themselves over the top, and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. 225 came here. After two days of fighting, only 90 could still bear arms. And behind me is a memorial that symbolizes the ranger daggers that were thrust into the top of these cliffs. And before me are the men who put them there. These are the boys of Puente Ho. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. Gentlemen, I look at you and I think of the words of Stephen Spender's poem. You were men who in your, quote, lives fought for life and lift, left the vivid air signed with your honor. Forty summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? Well, what impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right, faith that they fought for all humanity, faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge, and pray God we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. 
You were here to liberate, not to conquer. And so you and those others did not doubt your cause. And you were right not to doubt. You all knew that some things are worth dying for. One's country is worth dying for. And democracy is worth dying for because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man. All of you loved liberty. All of you were willing to fight tyranny. And you knew the people of your countries were behind you. We're bound today by what bound us 40 years ago, the same loyalties, traditions, and beliefs. We're bound by reality. The strength of America's allies is vital to the United States, and the American security guarantee is essential to the continued freedom of Europe's democracies. We were with you then. We're with you now. Your hopes are our hopes, and your destiny is our destiny. Here in this place, where the West held together, let us make a vow to our dead. Let us show them by our actions that we understand what they died for. Let our actions say to them the words for which Matthew Ridgway listened, I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Strengthened by their courage, heartened by their value, and borne by their memory, let us continue to stand for the ideals for which they lived and died. Thank you very much, and God bless you all. President Ronald Reagan, one of the most memorable speeches, not only of his presidency, but I think of any American president on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1984, at Point de Hoc. These were the boys who scaled the cliffs. I remember that speech very, very well, being a being in high school, actually, at the time, and watching it on television, how powerful that was, written by Peggy Noonan. We will continue our D-Day 75th anniversary commemoration tribute. We'll be joined by Cigar Mother Piera, who had the opportunity to visit the Normandy area, the Normandy American Cemetery, and we will share her thoughts, very powerful, very emotional, as our 75th anniversary commemoration of D-Day continues from the American Victory Ship. It's been 75 years since our young soldiers stormed the beaches in France to liberate Europe. Remembrance maneuvers continue after this on The Cigar Dave Show. In 1964, Jose O. Padron began rolling cigars bearing his name in modest surroundings with one guiding principle, always focus on quality, never on quantity. Nearly 40 years later, Padron cigars are recognized for their superior taste and majestic construction. The result of Padron controlling all aspects of the cigar making process, including planting their own seeds, growing and curing their own tobacco, and constantly supervising the rolling room. 
to Wall Street, it is called vertical integration. To the Padron family, it's called making great cigars. The Padron lines include the Padron 1964 Anniversary Series and the Padron Traditional line. All Padron cigars are wrapped in Nicaraguan sun-grown Habano tobacco, available in natural or maduro. Experience Padron. For your Padron retailer, call 1-800-453-5635. When Padron is on the band, quality is a matter of family honor. Surgeon General Warning. Tobacco use increases the risk of infertility, stillbirth, and low birth weight. scaled the cliffs at Normandy in the name of freedom on June 6, 1944. Seventy-five years later, we honor and remember their heroic acts. This is Omaha Beach in Normandy, France. More than 2,000 Americans died on the shores of Normandy on June 6, 1944 known to all as D-Day. On a cliff high above it rests the Normandy American Cemetery, one of the world's best-known military cemeteries. Buried on these hallowed grounds are the remains of nearly 9,400 servicemen and women who died on and around Omaha and Utah beaches and in the struggle that followed to break out from the beachhead. Every year, millions of visitors pay their respects and learn more about history. Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. is one of three Medal of Honor recipients buried here. There are 38 sets of brothers buried next to one another. At the center of the cemetery sits a small chapel. A ceiling mosaic depicts America blessing her sons as they depart to fight for freedom. In the open arc of the memorial facing the graves area is a 22-foot bronze statue, the spirit of American youth rising from the waves. The names of the missing are carved into garden walls behind the memorial. Visitors can visualize the daunting challenge and intense combat of the D-Day landings from an overlook just north of the memorial. Cigar mother, alpha male mother, joining us from the Buffalo Theater of Operations. Mom, you had the opportunity back in 2005 to visit the beaches at Normandy and the Normandy American Cemetery, and I would like you to share your experiences and your thoughts uh, because you said it would have a profound impact upon you. Yes, it definitely did, and thank you for having me. Um, well, we did go. It was a trip I always wanted to take, and it was very meaningful to me because I did live through World War II. And uh, we we took the trip. We went to Paris, and, but we went right to uh, uh, Normandy, and this was really what we wanted to do. We went to Normandy 
And the first thing we did was we were in a small group with American people, and we went to Point York. And as you mentioned, Point York was a very important place, and this was where it all began. Um, it was really the boldest raid in history, and it was uh, there was a, a Lieutenant Colonel James Rudder, who was really a rancher from Texas, who led who who led the uh, the group, and he went. They went up a hundred foot cliff, as you mentioned, to try and destroy the enemy. Well, it wasn't very easy. However, by the grace of God, they did manage with a lot of casualties. They did go up, and they were able to uh, to overtake that. Um, we started walking around the area. There were bunkers that were so embedded you couldn't see any you couldn't see a face inside. All you could see was guns. Then you walked around and uh, it was very quiet. It was a, a weird day. It was very rainy, misty, cold, and this was July. Then we walked around Omaha Beach. We looked first. We looked down, and we couldn't believe how how far down it was. Those cliffs were unbelievable, and you and you think, how on earth were they ever were able to climb up there? But they did. Um, we walked around, and we we overlooked o- Omaha Beach. And as I turned around, I saw there was a stairway going down to the beach. And I told Dad, I said, uh, I'm going down to the beach. I have to go down to the beach. I went down, and I stood there. I just really, I felt very emotional. I felt I was on on, on sacred ground, sacred sand. And I took a handful of sand. I held it in my hand. I put it in a bag. And I went upstairs and I said, I'm going to send some to Dave because this is a very important day. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Omaha Beach was really one of the bloodiest beach because of all the casualties they had. You could see the the mines are still there. Everything is is intact the way it was. Uh, After that... We went to the American Cemetery. The American Cemetery is about eight miles away, and it's in Colville-sur-Mer. And yes, um, we we went. In. As we were going in, we saw a. Uh, we heard. Uh, we heard. I heard music, and I said, "What is this?" And we heard um, there was a a Carillion that was playing God Bless America and uh, America the Beautiful and very softly. And as he went in, it was awfully, awfully quiet. And uh, the first thing we saw, I saw, was this beautiful statue, this bronze, 22-foot bronze statue. And you know, as as you mentioned, it said the spirit of American youth rising from the waves, and the hand is outstretched up to the sky. And I thought it was very appropriate and very beautiful. And then from then on, there's a reflective pool, and 
after the reflective pool, your eyes go go your eyes go to just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of white tombstones. All you see so immaculate and so so well placed. And as we walked around, we walked around, and it, it was very moving to see that some were 19, 20, young, very young, young, young. And um, they were still playing the songs, and there were no sounds. There was, there was nothing else to be heard. There were people from all walks of life, people from all over the con- different countries, and it was so quiet, it was so reverent, it was so respectful that there wasn't even a whisper. All you could hear is shuffling of, uh, of the feet. And I thought it was really extremely emotional and very moving. And then there's also uh, there's a chapel there that says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Um, it was a very extremely... Uh, uh, difficult day, and I think when we were when we were done, we went to the bus. We all looked at each other. Nobody said a word, and I thought how appropriate. It was cold. It was raining, and it just was really. It fit the mood. And you did mention that, and you said you could just picture what they went through on that day oh. with the waves and yes. the, the oh, mist and the clouds. Terrible. Yes, it was. It and then was. looking up at those cliffs, you said, how did these boys get up there? Unbelievable. The guts they had, the, the courage. What heroes? The rangers were really the heroes. They, well, they're all heroes. And we will, we will talk about the boys at Point du Hoc uh, in the next segment. Mom, very quickly, you lived in Alexandria, Egypt. You grew up in Alexandria, Egypt. It was under yes, British uh, control, British rule. Yes. And uh, you had to, you experienced the Nazis' World War II with the bombing campaigns, and you went into the uh, bunkers every night. We did every night. Every night we we ended up in the bunker, yes, in underground shelters. Yes, we did. And uh, Rommel was at our doorstep, but thank goodness for the Americans. <laughs> well, the Americans and, and also the British, because and the at British, all... of course, right. Montgomery, Montgomery, yes, Montgomery. Right, did, at uh, El Alamein, El Alamein uh, both was... first in, in July 1942, and then the second battle at Alamein in September of 1942, yeah. uh, Lieutenant General Bernard Montgomery was able to repel him, and of course, the greatest general of them all, General George S. Patton, got to North Africa and took care of yes, the Nazis, and that was the end of that. That's right. That's right, your hero. <laughs> Absolutely, the greatest general of them all. Well, Mom, I want to thank you for sharing that experience because You're clearly welcome. just listening, you can. I think all of our uh, listeners certainly got the experience of what it was like on that hallowed ground uh, yes. on the beaches of Normandy. Thank you. Quite the emotional experience, and it is on my list to go to Normandy and visit the Normandy American Cemetery and pay tribute to all those fallen brave and every single American who participated on that incredible day, June 6, 1944, 75 years ago. For the final and concluding segment of this 75th anniversary commemoration edition of the Cigar Dave Show, some various notes and interesting information about D-Day, including the greatest general of them all, General George S. Patton, how he was involved or not involved, and Dr. Nick Mueller, 
the author of the book, Everything We Have. We will hear from him. And we'll wrap it up with a very, very emotional song that was played and listened to by every single American GI as they headed overseas, hoping that they would return. Commemorating the 75th anniversary of D-Day. This special edition of the Cigar Dave Show continues next. Hi, this is Rocky Patel. If you're a beginner, or if you just enjoy a great mild cigar like I do in the morning, I suggest you try the Vintage 99. This seven-year-old Connecticut wrapper delivers a creamy, mild, smooth flavor. It's very, very balanced on your palate, and it absolutely is delightful. Tons of flavor, a perfect draw, and an incredible ash. This cigar is smooth, it will entice you to enjoying more and more of the Vintage 99s. It's just a nice, great, balanced, smooth cigar. Look for it, the oldest Connecticut shape in the market today. I'm Rocky Patel, and I promise you, nobody works harder than we do to make you a great quality cigar. Come visit us at RockyPatel.com. Surgeon General warning, cigar smoking can cause cancer and heart disease. The Cigar Dave Officers Club has been bringing you fantastic cigars every month for the last 15-plus years. The streak continues. The June 2019 Officers Club selection features the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut, a delicious cigar crowned with a shade-grown wrapper from the Connecticut River Valley. The Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut Provides a luxuriously creamy experience, nice notes of vanilla, toasted caramel, a little bit of pepper, a nice, smooth, natural sweetness to the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut. To become a member of the Cigar Dave Officers Club and get great cigars such as the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut, it's very simple. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and for $22.95 per month, you will get three exquisite cigars shipped directly to you. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club and experience great cigars such as the Balmoral Añejo Exo Connecticut. Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, a very well-known hit sung by the Andrews Sisters, an iconic World War II tune as we recreate the time during D-Day 75 years ago, June 6, 1944. I have not spoken about the greatest general of them all in my estimation, General George S. Patton, but General Patton played a very unique role for D-Day. He was not directly involved, but a special army a fictitious army of 1,100 men under the guidance, under the command of General George S. Patton, who was put in charge of the unit, was created under Operation Fortitude to, as a decoy, as a diversion to make the Nazis think that Patton, their best general, will be landing at Pasta Calais, 150 miles northeast of Normandy. The deception worked because the Allied forces landed in Normandy, 
and as we say, the rest is history. Speaking of history, one of the great historians, Dr. Nick Mueller of World War II, co-founder of the World War II Museum in New Orleans, just has written a book entitled Everything We Have. Here are some excerpts from an interview that uh, he did with the World War II Museum. We're here to talk about your new book today, Everything We Have. Um, it's about D-Day, um, and as you know, Nick, the, the term D in D-Day, it, it, it's merely a placeholder. It, when you don't know the date of a military operation, you call, you call the first day D-Day. Um, why of all the operations in World War II is June 6, 1944, why does it have that reputation as the D-Day? Well, it always will be the D-Day because it was one of the great climactic battles of World War II and really all of uh, world history, uh, human history, and there were over 130 of them. But this D-Day was something different and everybody knew it uh, because it was the pivot point of the war in Europe. It was the pivot point perhaps of the entire war because if we had lost, the Allies had lost that amphibious assault, all would have been different. And some say it was the pivot point of the whole 20th century. Everything before that moment, that battle, was different than everything that followed. Nick, the title of the book, Everything We Have, I couldn't help but notice that. Tell us about it. Everything We Have is uh, taken from a, a, a talk that uh, Supreme Commander General Eisenhower had with his commanders just a few weeks before the D-Day invasion. And he just said to his men, he said, men, we're going to throw everything we have into this battle. So that title connotes both the, the tension, the drama, uh, the sacrifice that was about to happen as he launched the biggest invasion in world history, 160,000 troops, uh, 11,000 aircraft, 5,000 ships, all timed and coordinated to hit the beaches at 6.30 in the morning on D-Day with the paratroopers coming in right after midnight. So just think, leading up to that moment, I mean, there were millions of people working secretly under top classification uh, and getting ready for this exact moment. If it's everything they have, it's not like there's a second chance, is there? That there was no alternate plan, as Eisenhower said. Everything was at stake. It was the biggest gamble in military history and in world history and loss of that battle could ultimately have meant the delay in winning the war or maybe losing the war. Nick, personal stories and artifacts, they're at the heart, the core of this museum's educational mission. D-Day was such a massive operation, and you've now written a book about it, but what's unique about this book is that it deals with these personal stories. Is there one individual, one artifact that kind of sticks with you as you think about writing everything we have? Well, uh, yes, this is uh, a letter uh, Gordon Oslin, an artillery officer, uh, wrote to his wife three days, June 3rd, uh, before uh, the D-Day landing. So she wouldn't have received it she by D-Day. And she wasn't going to receive it, and he knew that. It's a very poignant, and uh, he didn't make it. So he's writing, and he says, to my beautiful wife, Chickie. And then he says, it's almost midnight on June 3rd. I want you to remember that date. I'm going to get my first real test as an officer very shortly, my sweet. I don't know just how I'll react to it. But at the present, I'm very calm. Chicky, when you get this letter, it will be old news, and you will know what the score is. Honey, I'm with a wonderful bunch of men, and they are all in the best spirits, and morale is high. And he says, good night, my sweets. P.S., 
If anything should happen to me, honey, please play, pay H.J. the $25 I owe him. An honorable man to the end. And, I mean, just think of that. And he died on D-Day. So she got this letter. She knew the score. Never saw his chickie again. Nope. But uh, these kinds of artifacts, photographs from the museum collection surround these personal stories uh, that are uh, in this book, Everything We Have. I have ordered the book, Everything We Have, by Dr. Nick Mueller, and I will read it cover to cover as soon as it arrives. One of the very special songs that was written in 1939, performed by singer Vera Lynn, is entitled, We'll Meet Again. And it was almost a theme for all the troops that were going into battle. Meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you. Always do Till the blue skies Drive the dark clouds Far away So will you please say hello To the folks that I know Tell them I won't be long They'll be happy to know That as you saw me go I was singing this song We meet again Don't know where Don't know when But I know we'll meet again Some sunny day present today's D-Day 75th anniversary commemorative show. Special thanks to Bill Kuzmik of the American Victory Ship, Sergeant Steve for producing today's show, and on this 
special edition. We end in a special way with a salute, a thank you, and with great appreciation to those boys who stormed the beaches and served in World War II and thank them for saving the free world from Nazi oppression. May those who remain forever young on the Normandy battlefields and all those other World War II veterans that are no longer with us, may they rest in peace and may their memories be a blessing.